the cries of the From your throne you look out on all the inhabitants of the earth, and nothing escapes your notice, especially injustices. Here on earth, we don't always or immediately see that you are heaping judgment on wickedness. Here on earth, our senses can deceive us and tell us that you overlook sin. But in heaven, justice is secure, and through the incarnation of your Son, heaven is breaking like the dawn throughout the earth. All your enemies are being conquered and put to shame for their wicked rebellion against you. You have no tolerance for the wicked. You hate those who love violence, and their future is entirely cut off. Lord, we know that you are active in putting an end to evil in this world, so we must confront our own participation in wickedness. We have been caught up in all sorts of evil, and worse, we have participated. Forgive us for sanitizing or excusing our own sin. Through your Holy Spirit, open our eyes where we have thought more highly of ourselves than we should, and in this pride, elevated ourselves to a place that's reserved for you. Open our eyes to how we have treasured this world more than the next, and made idols out of gifts you have given us. Open our eyes where we have withheld love for one another, and shown that we do not know Jesus or his self-sacrificial love. Open our eyes where we have not forgiven others their trespasses. Help us to take your words seriously, that if we don't forgive others their sins, then you will not forgive ours. We confess these things from our weakness and our poverty, knowing that we need the riches of your grace. And we know that you bestow them not based on our worthiness, but on your generosity. Knowing our weaknesses, we pray with humility that you would continue and even accelerate the coming of your kingdom, which includes bringing to open shame all the people and systems of this world that oppress and enslave humanity. Expose wickedness in every dark corner of our society. May any who abuse the authority of political office for their own gain be brought to a saving knowledge of you. And if they will not, then let justice be brought so that those who govern will govern under your authority. May any who defile your name and seek to use your word to ensnare others under false religion be toppled, either submitting gladly to your rule or to the disgrace of their wickedness. In every area, Lord, media of all forms, education, our work and free time, make it plain to all that your ways are good, that we need a savior, and you have provided healing, purification, and vindication in your son, Jesus the Messiah. Bring an end to all who rebel against your lordship. We pray these things trembling, not from our own righteousness, but knowing that this is in line with your character and part of the arc of redemptive history. In this spirit, we pray for believers around the world that are persecuted for their faith in you. Specifically, we pray for your children, our brothers and sisters under attack in Nigeria and North Korea. We pray that you would visit them with supernatural strength in their faith, and let that faith shine as a witness to their persecutors so that you would bring them under your rule. And if they will not submit to your rule, then we pray that you would bring them to an end fitting to their own wickedness and violence. Lord, rescue the weak and the needy, 
deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Bring your good and righteous judgment on all who suppress your truth. Father, for ourselves, we need to know you more. We need to know your character, the way you forgive iniquity for those who submit to you, but you do not remove the iniquity of those who don't. We need to know more and more about your mercy and how it's expressed to us through the cross of your son. We need to walk the path that he walked. We need to hunger for your words like a starving person needs food. Topple us this morning for your sake so that we will sing your praises. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Ryan. You can open your Bibles to Psalms 35 and 40. Psalms 35 and 40. If you read ahead because the newsletter said 41, I called an audible. So we're doing 40 instead. We'll get to 41. Our society has become amazingly adept at imprecation. Now, if you don't know what that means, don't worry, you're not alone. Imprecation means a spoken curse. And now that you know that, you would probably agree that our society has become amazingly adept at imprecation. Whether it be watching interactions in traffic, watching that road rage flare, reading the comments on the bottom of news stories, watching any cable news, listening to podcasts, or wandering downtown on most weekends, one will find imprecation flying wildly. We curse one another, and even ourselves, constantly. Now, in theological terms, a curse is to call down divine affliction from the heavens. In atheistic terms, it is still done, but it's almost a bit more bizarre because it is a human calling out to beings they say they don't believe in to bring affliction upon someone. And so whether it be a football game, or whether it be debating political hot-button issues, or whether it be a husband and wife having a fight, curses seem to fly regularly in our society. Now, in adjective form, it is imprecatory, and it's used to describe a number of the psalms in the psalm book of the Bible. These are called imprecatory psalms. Everybody say imprecatory psalms. Psalms in which the author calls down a curse upon their enemies. Our two psalms this morning can easily fall into this category. Psalm 35 is a well-known imprecatory psalm. The entirety of the psalm is imprecation, as you'll see. And Psalm 40 contains imprecation within it. It is not entirely a psalm uh, of imprecation, but it has some in it. And so to an extent, they are both imprecatory. But what is, <clears throat> excuse me, what is imprecatory prayer and how does it relate to us as Christians? In my experience, there's a spectrum of opinion on the topic of if and why Christians can use imprecatory psalms. On one end, you have those who say Christians are not to utter imprecatory prayers at all. On the other, there are those who feel justified to use them at any given moment, anytime they feel wronged as a Christian. As with any biblical truth, though, we don't get to simply decide the law on our own, do we? We must dig into the wisdom of God's Word and see how He directs us. So our own personality is not what gets to set the tone, the Word of God is. 
Now, the first thing that we must reckon with is that imprecation exists in the Old Testament. It is well utilized and is even looked upon righteously by God. It's an important tool of worship in the midst of Israel. But then the question looms, is it the same for the New Testament church? Are we to use the same tool in worship, or was that supposed to stop with the Old Testament? Well, the answer to that question is, yes, we are to use it. In fact, Ryan just actually did a very good job praying an imprecatory prayer. But as is usually the case with Scripture, it has to be a very nuanced yes, doesn't it? As New Testament believers, we can quickly get grasp onto the texts that tell us one side or the other because it's hard for us to sit in the tension. One of the ways we can grasp onto texts in this case is the texts that tell us that we should not curse people as the only commentary on the topic. For example, we're commanded by Christ to bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And Paul is pretty clear in Romans 12, 14, isn't he? Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. That sounds like an open and shut case a bit, doesn't it? This is easier too, isn't it? We like being nice. Nice feels good. Positive and encouraging is easy and leaves no conflict. You don't see a competing radio station to positive, encouraging K-Love that is imprecatory and hate-filled, whatever. It just wouldn't go well, would it? And in many cases, it is what we are to do, to be nice, to bless, and not curse. That is absolutely a command of God that cannot be cast aside. But the case of imprecatory prayers is not so easily closed. For the imprecatory psalms of 5 and 6 and 35 and 109 are all cited in the New Testament, giving credence to their tone, their content, and their purpose. In the Gospels, we see Jesus call down woes of judgment, imprecation, upon religious leaders multiple times. In the beginnings of Galatian, uh, excuse me, in the beginning of Galatians, we see the Apostle Paul call for anyone preaching a rogue gospel to be accursed. You can't get much more imprecatory than that, can you? And not least of all, the saints are pictured in Revelation 6.10 calling for justice to be handed out to the wicked who seek their lives. And remember, Revelation, this is a picture of who the church in the current day is. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's an imprecatory prayer. What we see then is not a one-sided yay or nay on the topic, but a very pointed questioning of the purpose and heart behind the imprecation. At their core, imprecatory prayers are an appeal for divine justice. But that too can be, a, be abused as the motivation when it is just a mask hiding a darker, deep-seated sinful desire for vengeance and the enthronement of the self. You see, depending upon what you find unjust often determines where you believe you are justified to use a spoken curse. Thus, Democrats curse Republicans, and Republicans curse Democrats, all in the name of truth and justice. But I would wager that the majority of these calls for justice originate not out of the lordship of Christ, but the lordship of the individual pronouncing the imprecatory prayer. An unwise, sinful imprecation comes from a place of justifying one's own sin while calling out another's. But a wise, godly use of imprecatory prayer begins and ends with God's sovereignty and glory. Amen? 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 
For when we pray an imprecatory prayer, we are praying, God, you are holy, good, and just. Let your will be done so that your mercy is shown to those that you save and your justice is shown to those you will rightly judge. And it begins with a statement of humility where we realize that without God's grace, we fall into the category of those to be cursed. We fall, rightfully so, into the category to be judged to condemnation, unless the Lord saves. Now, in a sense, you can see the imprecatory side of the Lord's Prayer that Deborah read to us a minute ago. Anytime we pray the way that Christ taught us to pray, we are praying imprecation. For in that prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying that the fullness of God's character overwhelms all creation in fullness and completion. In that statement, then, we are praying that both his long-suffering and compassionate love and his sound and just judgment be carried out. To pray his will be done is to pray for love and for justice. Interesting, if you were to look on social media, how often the hashtag, your kingdom come, would be used to talk about judgment. Probably very little. It's not a one-sided view. These ideas of love and just judgment are not two opposing forces of a Jekyll and Hyde type of God, but one in the same that, when combined, bring about his glory, his truth, and his good. They bring about justice in truth. Our call for not mine, but thy will be done is both Father, rescue and deliver those undeserving wicked sinners upon whom you've shown mercy and let me be one of them. And Father, bring about your wrath upon the evil of mankind and creation as a whole. Psalm 83 does a beautiful, great, balanced example of this. Look at what it says in Psalm 83, 16 through 18. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, Yahweh the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You see the balance there? Ultimately, the desire of an imprecatory prayer is not vengeance or retribution to right the wrong that has been personally done to you. Ultimately, it is partnering with God to right the wrong of all creation done to his name and his honor. It is to hold tight to the mercy and justice brought about by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So should we pray imprecatory prayers as New Testament believers? Absolutely. Because we desire for God's sovereignty to be known and God's will to be accomplished. Brothers and sisters, do not shy away from calling sin, sin. And seeing it with a vehement hatred, so much so that you take it to the Lord for him to have his will done in judging it. But we must do so with the utmost care, impartiality, and godly fear. For when we call for God's wrath upon sin, we must be assured we are not simultaneously calling for our own destruction since we are most blind 
to the sin in our own prideful hearts and minds and actions. In other words, we must be assured that our imprecation matches God's own imprecation, not one developed out of our adulation of self. To think in this way is to think godly, wisely, and humbly about the sin of mankind, including my own sin, and also to think wisely about God's glory. Now, with all this biblical theology around imprecatory prayers, (laughs) tongue twister if you say it enough, with all this as our foundation, let's now look at two examples of imprecatory prayer in our two psalms this morning. We will see that the author, David, is not just praying solely a verbal curse upon his enemies. He is doing that, true. But he is more so praying for God to carry out his will and in the process grant him mercy. For David knows that only God alone could bring the deliverance he is looking for, especially from his own spiritual weakness and depravity. And so this morning, in these two, what we will see is David praying to the Lord for the Lord's incomparable deliverance. Praying to the Lord for his incomparable deliverance. This is not just something we do one time at a church camp when we're young. It's not just something we do right before we get baptized. It is an ongoing prayer an ongoing prayer in the midst of the life of the Christian. My prayer for us is that it will teach us not only how to pray, but more so how to submit ourselves under the sovereign hand of God no matter what comes our way in this short temporal life. So let's begin in Psalm 35, and we're going to read the first 10 verses together out of Psalm 35, starting in verse 1. And obviously the heading there is that this is the Psalm of David. Verse 1. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction." Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Now I know some of you in this room, you feel bad for even having said that out loud. You're just that nice. But Psalm 35 obviously is an imprecatory prayer, is it not? And it can be summarized, the entirety of the psalm, as our first point this morning, an imprecatory prayer that pleads for deliverance. An imprecatory prayer that pleads for deliverance. Now, to pray this prayer, David breaks the psalm down into three distinct sections, and I'll put those up on the screen in a moment after you're done writing down the title. First, he calls for God's deliverance using warfare language. Then he calls for God's deliverance using litigation or legal language. And then he finishes with a broader call for vindication or clearing of his name in innocence, a kind of call for purification or cleansing. And so what we see in verses 1 through 10 is that he calls out to God and in essence says, fight for me, fight for me. 
Now, the biblical worldview that is explicitly stated in both the Old and New Testaments is that in this world, there are two kingdoms constantly at war. The kingdom of light, the kingdom of Yahweh, and the kingdom of darkness, led by the adversary of God, Hasatan, or Satan. The spiritual warfare of these two dominions plays out in the material realm of the created world. And oftentimes, we are completely clueless to it happening. We have to be very careful in discerning which is which and how they play out, because Satan is a master deceiver whose desire is to manipulate humanity into misunderstanding right and wrong, truth and error. His goal is to get the world to the place where we often see it, where evil is called good and good is called evil. Just look at the garden scene of the fall in Genesis. Now, as we read Scripture, it is very easy to categorize these two kingdoms into rigid lines made up of people, such as Democrats or Republicans, such as wealthy or poor, powerful or powerless, abusers or victims. This is very, very prominent right now. Everything in our society is pushed through this filter of the language of oppressor and the oppressed. The social justice gospel is quite good at grabbing onto this rigid delineation, as is the prosperity gospel. You'll notice in one, the hero is the poor. In the other, the hero is the rich. They just usually do so grabbing onto this rigid delineation in opposition to one another, but both are an error to the truth. The truth is that these rigid lines of demarcation are very rarely, if ever, what the Bible is primarily concerned about. Sure, within the people of God, absolutely, the wealthy are to help the financially poor because this images the charitable heart of God. This is the Levitical law. This is there in the New Testament. This is true. But overall, when talking about the warfare between two kingdoms, similar language is used in our English translations, but is often meaning something at a more spiritual level than a practical level. Think with me about verse 10 for a moment. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. This may have been written when David was running from Saul and had no money and no army right at the beginning. But even then, David had already proven himself a fierce warrior, killing Goliath and killing a hundred Philistines as a bride price for Saul's daughter. One of the grossest Sunday school lessons ever, if you know which one I'm talking about. And God had told him clearly that he would be king, and as such, he would amass great wealth. In fact, all of the people of the land would look at David and they would say, he is the rich, he is the strong. Even on the run, the narrative shows him amassing great wealth, great booty, as the pirates would say. Now, David is talking here more about strength and weakness in a different sense. He is talking about being lowly, poor, and needy before God. The word here rendered poor in the Hebrew is primarily this idea, not so much financial. It is this same idea that Jesus was discussing when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And two verses later, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is not the default of physically weak or physically meek or financially poor. It is meek, humble, and poor before God. It is realizing and declaring your spiritual depravity and emptiness before God. It is stating your inherent need for God as the source of life and strength. It has to do with the creator-creation relationship and paradigm more so than any earthly characteristic. So you can be financially wealthy and spiritually meek and poor. You can be physically strong and spiritually meek and poor. 
Or flip it, you can be poverty-stricken and a physical weakling, but because of your arrogance before God, you think you are strong of heart and lack nothing. It is that heart that is within the wicked. And then the former heart, that is within the righteous. This is the backdrop that highlights David's comments here. He is declaring that he is in great need of Yahweh because he is Yahweh's servant attempting to accomplish Yahweh's will. Remember, he's the one who's been anointed the king of the people by God. And he's being thwarted by enemies of God's kingdom. And we know this by the ways in which his enemies are going about his destruction. They devise evil, he says, laying traps for him. So David here uses warfare language to call for God to defend him, to return justly upon his enemies the very traps that they set for him. Look at verses 7 through 8. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. And all we've been discussing is highlighted and underlined in verse 5. Let them be like chaff before the, the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. This idea of the angel of the Lord brings to mind many stories from the Torah and the prophets, but most vividly in the context of warfare, the mention of this same character in Joshua 5. You guys remember that story? Joshua is leading the Israelite army against the fortified city of Jericho. And by army, I mean probably peasants with pitchforks at this point in time. And the commander of the Lord's army appears, the angel of the Lord. And remember the interchange there in Joshua 5? Love this. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. <laughs> so defeating for, for poor Joshua. No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. I think of this almost every time I hear a sports team pray for victory over the other sports team. Side note. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? It is in this spirit that the imprecatory prayer must come. God, whose side are you on? My side or the side of the person or party with whom I'm in conflict or angry with? What's his response to us? No. <laughs> but I am on the right side. I'm on my own side. That's what he says. And then he asks us, are you there with me? In this situation, are you there with me? If so, our prayer becomes a partnership with God, not an idle pagan attempt to manipulate him to build our kingdom, to justify ourselves. So David calls God to fight for him with shield, bow, buckler, javelin, contend for him, turn them back, blow them away, let their foot slip in the battlefield, ensnare them, destroy them. We should not minimize God's heart, God's heaviness of language when he is very clear in how he feels about those that come against his kingdom. Why does David want to accomplish this? Well, verses 9 and 10. Then my soul will rejoice in Yahweh, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? To declare that there is no other God but the God who installed David as king over Israel. 
That's why he wants to do this. There is no other God other than Yahweh. O Yahweh, who is like you? Say to my soul, you are my salvation. You alone can bring true justice and right the wrongs of the kingdom of evil. Well, he continues in verses 11 through 18, asking for God's help, but this time he's using legal language as he cries out, rescue me. Would you read it with me there in verse 11? Malicious witnesses rise up. Go ahead and read with me, guys. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Here, as if a defendant being brought up on charges by those close to him, David cries out to God to recognize the injustice and bring justice. The scene that he paints is that people have become violent or vitriolic in their testimony that he has done wrong. In verses 13 through 14, he recounts that these same witnesses had been deathly ill. And so he interceded on their behalf to God in prayer and worship. He cared for them as if they were his own closest companion or family. He acted in a way to show them great love. But then in return, something happened that is unfortunately all too common. His attempt at love was responded to with hatred and violence and words that were unjust of condemnation. And worse yet, when he struggled... They actually rejoiced at his struggling. They mocked and gnashed their teeth. How often, even in something as vain as athletics or politics, do we celebrate someone as if they are God's ordained Savior, like King David, but then eventually turn on them and rejoice in their downfall? This behavior exemplifies the heart of the kingdom of darkness, and you see it every time a pastor falls. He is the greatest pastor ever, Oh, look what a slime ball he is. He fell. I knew it all along. It's everywhere, even pervasive in the church. It's how the world operates, and it will happen to anyone who is in Christ because it is how the kingdom of darkness operated towards Christ. One day, come. We want you to be our king. The next day, crucify him. In the section of the Gospel of John where Jesus is telling his disciples, that if they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He quotes from this section of Psalm 35. He quotes it in John 15, 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He grasps on to words that David uses, that David exemplifies in his own life and testifies of here in Psalm 35 and says, this is what I'm going through as well even to the uttermost. So friends, we must recognize that what David is going through here, 
This will occur to us if we are truly his own. At some point in your life, if you are Christ's, you will be hated for it. Unfortunately, this same behavior is all too present in the group that is supposed to be representative of the kingdom of light as well. I've quoted this before, but it applies well here, too, for how people often operate in the visible church. And it's a very sad thing, but it is very well captured in this quote from John Piper. Emotional blackmail happens when a person equates his or her own emotional pain with another person's failure to love. A person may love well, and the beloved still feel hurt, and use the hurt to blackmail the lover into admitting guilt he or she does not have. Emotional blackmail says, if I feel hurt by you, you are guilty. There is no defense. The hurt person has become God. His emotion has become judge and jury. Truth does not matter. All that matters is the sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. It is above question. This emotional device, Piper says, is great evil. I have seen it often in my three decades of ministry, and I am eager to defend people who are being wrongly indicted by it. Friends, if we're honest with ourselves, every one of us has engaged in this at some time or another. This kind of behavior is unjust because it sets, itself, it sets up oneself as king, as the self-justified, self-righteous judge of what is good and what is evil, dependent not upon God's law, but upon one's own standards and definition of what it is to be loved. It could not be any more contrary to the example of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. And it, yet it shows up constantly in the self-proclaimed Christians as we approach the church or our friendships or our marriages. It is the same evil with which David is here contending. And so David calls for God to see the injustice that is occurring and to bring justice so that the unlawful persecution of these individuals might cease, that God would rescue David from the lions. And I want to add to this that in praying this way, David is praying in love for those who are contending against him. Why? Because without God intervening and breaking them of their sin, they will be condemned. For David to, prayer, to pray imprecation upon those who are in sin is love. It's love because it is calling for God to break them of their sin so that he can be glorified and they can be humbled. I find it so interesting, given what I just noted about how this occurs in the church, that the place David says he would then praise is in the great congregation. He says this in verse 18, I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng I will praise you. The word here in the Hebrew is kahal for congregation. It is translated as ekklesia, in the Greek Septuagint, the word that is translated as church in the English in the New Testament. For David knows that for this wrong to be corrected, it would mean peace and reconciliation would come back to the people of God. And so he is praying that those who refuse such reconciliation would be silenced and broken. Powerful, powerful stuff. Well, David finishes Psalm 35 with an overarching call. Finally, Vindicate me. Let's read together Psalm 35, verses 19 through 28. Let's read together. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, 
But against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. David here summarizes all that has already been discussed, capturing clearly the injustice that is occurring as he is being demonized without cause. Verse 26 captures it well. They magnify themselves against me. David says they are clearly acting in a way that is against God's law and the truth of justice. Anytime we lift ourselves up over another, we are magnifying ourselves and doing the same thing. But notice how David prays in verse 24. Notice that he says here, Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. It is according to God's righteousness, God's law, God's standard that David is crying out. So verse 27 is not self-proclaimed arrogant righteousness. It is based on the realization that by himself, even as an enthroned king, David is needy, humble, lowly, and spiritually poor. He has no righteousness on his own. And to declare this as evidence in his metaphorical court trial, it would be his undoing. His only option is to seek the Lord's righteousness and declare himself, verse 27, to be the Lord's servant. His heart is possibly most evident in verses 21 and 22. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. But you have seen, O Lord. Be not silent, O Lord, be not far from me. Here he notes that those who are against him are declaring themselves the judge who has seen David's faults, but he asks the Lord to be the judge instead. And in that spiritual neediness, he then cries out, O Lord, O Yahweh, have you seen? So come to my aid, be near to me, for I am nothing without you. He knows that Yahweh alone can deliver him. He even said it back in verse 10. And so his response will be to tell of Yahweh's justice and mercy, to give him praise. Verse 28, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Friends, when we find ourselves in similar trials, we have here a perfect example of prayer. It models for us that we must approach the Lord with humility, recognizing that it is only in his righteousness, not our own, that sin can be dealt with and injustice corrected. But then it firmly trusts that if there is true injustice, it will be corrected. Perhaps that means that we will be corrected because we actually are the ones in sin. Or perhaps it means that God will ultimately correct those who are going against us. Maybe now, maybe at the judgment seat. 
but he will show himself true and just, and we can trust him as David does. Our prayer in those moments is for God to be glorified and for our highest good, for righteousness to come about, which means the breaking of sin if needed. God doesn't want, friends, sanitized, perfect prayer from his people. Yes, we write out our prayers when we do the pastoral prayer or the missional prayer. But friends, we do that because we take it seriously and with reverence. That does not mean that prayers that are straight from the heart in the moment are not good prayers. But we must know that in those moments when we pray out to God, when we put forth our hearts before him, he's not looking for the perfect order of words. He wants us to come to him honestly, in humility, and pray, Our Father, you are on the throne, and I am not. You are the judge of the hearts of men, and I am not. May you receive all glory and honor in my life and in the earth because you're worthy of it. So now, Lord, in this situation in which I find myself and in all the earth, may your will be done here so that it magnifies your throne and your reign. And so correct sin if it's mine. Convict hearts if it's mine. Bring justice to bear. If it is me, correct me so that I may be one with you and may step out of my sin. If it is not me, correct those who are against me so that your name might be glorified. Friends, this is the kind of prayer that we must bring to him in these kinds of moments. Not looking out for our interests or even the interests of the other, but looking out for the glory of God. Now you might push back and say, but Hans, how can I trust God to do what I want and need? And the answer is, you can't trust him to do that. Praise God. For that would be worship centered around you as a false idol. But you can trust him to bring justice and truth and righteousness because it glorifies him. And if we look back on our lives, I guarantee you that we will see that when our hearts have been submitted to him, he has always done that, most specifically in our moment of salvation through his son. And we get a glimpse of this perfectly in Psalm 40. Would you turn with me there as well? And we will see David write another imprecatory prayer. But the imprecation in this prayer, in this psalm, is only a part. Overall, what we will see is a song of praise and a plea for deliverance. A song of praise and a plea for deliverance. Now this, too, can be broken up into three sections, which I'll put on the screen in a moment for you. The Lord's faithfulness in past deliverance, trusting in the Lord's present goodness to his people, and a prayer for future deliverance. It's past, present, and future. Would you read with me again, starting in verses 1 through 5, and we'll see the Lord's faithfulness in past deliverance here. Verses 1 through 5, and I'll leave that on the screen so you're not rushed. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. 
You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. Here we see David's outline of the Lord's faithfulness in past deliverance. This is possibly one of the best declaration, uh, declarations of God's salvation for an individual. David declares so clearly here that he was crying out to God, but without knowing it, he was doing so from a pit of destruction. And this pit was one he could not get out of on his own. That is why what a miry bog is. The mud traps your feet, and you cannot walk. You're as if a dead man. He could not get out of his deserved destruction on his own. And so he waited for God because it was God alone, Yahweh alone, who could lift him out of this destruction and enliven him to the point of walking as if on a flat rock that was secure. And verse 3, I believe, declares the sign of one whom Yahweh has drawn to himself and made his own. And we looked at this last week. He gives a new song of praise into David's mouth that only his elect and saved people know and sing. It is specific to his people because it is a song of praise to the one true God who is unlike any of the other false pagan deities or idols proclaimed by mankind. And it is through that declaration that others will be brought to Yahweh. David then starts as if to parallel that truth in Psalm 1-1 that we started with so many months ago. Blessed is the man, it says in Psalm 1-1, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Here David says, verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Yahweh is the true God. The wicked go after other false gods. And what is the seedbed of the lie in which the wicked believe? It is the pride of their own hearts, defining and designing false gods that will reflect their own self-righteous hearts and their own subjective truth rather than the truth of who God has declared himself to be in his holy word. It is mixing and matching and adjusting and taking a buffet Christianity and a buffet God and leaving the rest, deciding on your own what Scripture says over and against historical truth, over and against good hermeneutics. And this is what the Lord has done for those that are truly his own, he has given them his word. He has helped them to make him their trust. Remember, this action on his part is not done in partiality, but impartiality. He has chosen people throughout time and space to be his own. He has, by his own grace and mercy, opened our blind eyes to the lies of idolatry and pagan manipulation of gods designed to serve our desires. And he has set our feet upon the rock of his truth, the rock of salvation, as declared in his gracious word. He has placed us among a church that calls one another to seek after that truth and has invited one another to collectively see and fear and put our trust in the Lord to declare the new song of praise to Jesus Christ, our Lord. From there, David rejoices and declares what it is to be next, trusting in the Lord's goodness to his people. Trusting in the Lord's goodness to his people. This is a present goodness. And one that you can see in the moment because you can look back even into the past to understand what God has done. Take a look at verses 6 through 10 and read with me there. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Being one of Yahweh's people, David not only experiences God's goodness to him as an individual, but he inherits the goodness that God has shown to his people over all time. Do you realize that's true for you as well? It's not just what God has done in your life. You, when you became one of his own, inherited the goodness he has given to his people throughout all eternity. And these acts of goodness are too many for them all to be told. In response, David declares what the greatest desire of the Lord is in regards to his people. For the animal sacrifices that came out of the fall in Genesis 3 and the sacrificial system given to the Israelites was not God's primary or first desire. In fact, the reason for it was to remind humanity of the death that our rebellion against God has brought into his creation. No, God's ultimate desire for worship is that his people trust in his declaration of good and evil and obey what he declares as good. In his salvation, in his justification, what he has done to enliven us is that he has removed the scales from our eyes and unstopped our ears so that we can hear his truth for what it is. And David realizes that in his inmost being, because of God's great salvation in his life, he now because of God's deliverance, desires to do God's will, at least at his core. He has done so because God's will has been given to him in the fullness of the Holy Scripture, and God has placed it on his heart to complete. David understands that this is none of his own doing, but all the gracious gift of God. God has made it so in his life. You have given me an open ear. And so his only response is to say aloud, look at what the Lord has done. He has delivered me. He has been faithful for salvation, and he has shown his steadfast love, his chesed to me. So what can man do but gather with others to whom God has called his chosen people and proclaim the truth of his undeserved mercy and grace? Friends, it is not a bad thing. Please hear me here. It is not a bad thing when we rejoice in the very practical, logistical, earthly things that God does the things that he makes very obvious. We like to share those testimonies with other people, but I think often we minimize the greatest work that God has done for every person that is his. We often say, look at what God has done. He's done this great healing or he's done this this great thing, whatever it might be. He's, He's given me a new job. He's provided for my family. He's helped heal a relationship. Friends, these are good things. We should testify of those. Please hear me. But how often do we hold back in testifying about the goodness of God to people because we're waiting for those things to happen in order to show that God is good? When in fact, his greatest goodness is that he has opened your eyes and unstopped your ears so that you might hear truth and see him and worship him as he is. Look at what God has done. Look at what he has done in my life. Friends, you can be saved and know Christ and have a life of complete and uttering suffering, trial, tribulation, and apocalypse. And you should still be able to say to a pagan world, look at what God has done. Now, it's interesting, is it not, to look at this section of text through the lens of the cross. 
For all the way back in Genesis 3, sacrifice was not part of God's original creation. He simply called for obedience in response to his benevolent provision in the proper creator-creation relationship. But Adam and Eve, standing in representation of all mankind that were, in a sense, contained within their progeny, rebelled against God's goodwill and brought sin into the world and upon their offspring. So the first animal sacrifice was completed so that they might have something to cover the shame that they identified with the seat of where that offspring was going to come. So they covered their nakedness. They covered their organs of reproduction, of producing offspring. And from then on, mankind used sacrifice not as a means to earn God's grace, but as a declaration that we had rebelled against God's goodness. And so sacrifice was needed that would end all the need for further sacrifices, a sacrifice that would conquer sin and rebellion, not just admit its presence, a sacrifice that would perfectly declare God's gracious, steadfast love to his creation and rightfully secure his place as king, and a sacrifice that would initiate a call and transformation in those upon whom he would show his mercy without condition. The New Testament writers rightly connect the dots that the sacrifice that would do this was the sacrifice of God incarnate in Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament, to Hebrews 10? Hebrews 10, and we'll look at one of those places where those dots are connected. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. Give me an amen if you're there. I'm going to go ahead and read this. You don't have to read this out loud. I'll just read this. Verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Speaking of the Levitical offerings of sacrifice, the author points out that these could never take away sin. They were a stopgap solution for the people to bring their transgressions before God and admit that they had rebelled against the one true God who graciously had covenanted with them in love, to admit to them that they needed a better sacrifice. All the while, these sacrifices were an arrow pointing in the direction of the one sacrifice that God said he would provide all the way back in Genesis Look at the screen, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a statement of sacrifice. Why? Because the one who will crush, in the NIV, crush the head of the serpent, destroy his power, his authority, will also be in the process killed because he will be bit by that viper, by that serpent. What happens when you get a viper bite way back then? No hospitals and such. You die. It's a sacrifice. And so the sacrifices of the Levites was putting forward the idea that, man, we need that ultimate sacrifice. And so in this beautiful understanding that God, in, in Hebrews 10, by his Holy Spirit, is the true author behind the inspired human authors like David in Psalms, next says this, starting in verse 5 of Hebrews 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then he quotes from the psalm that we just read, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. The author uses the words of David in Psalm 40, but says here, they were words of Christ as he entered the world. For he alone was the perfectly obedient one, the better perfect second Adam. And as he was the divine incarnate, he was the perfect sacrifice of God, offered completely out of grace, a solution for the destruction his creatures had wrought upon themselves in his good creation. His death then was enough to conquer sin and death once and for all, to put away the need for sacrifices. And so he says in verse 10, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ three of the best words in the English language, once for all. Friends, this is why we're not Catholic. We don't provide a sacrifice every Sunday in the Mass because once for all, the sacrifice of Jesus removed all the need for further sacrifice. To now identify with him and say, that sacrifice that was God incarnate dying on my behalf That is the statement of my sin. It accomplishes all the need of all the Levitical sacrifice. Jesus' death and resurrection defeated the sentence of spiritual death that was chosen by all mankind. His enthronement rightly placed him as King and Lord over our lives. And his pouring out of the Holy Spirit of God into our hearts initiated the process of being made holy and set apart for his purposes in obedience to his will. Friend, if you're here today and you have not accepted Christ's sacrifice in place of your own, God is calling you to recognize your need for it. For you are trapped in a lie and a bog of your own self-deception and pride. God will faithfully give you over to that pride as you seek to destroy yourself. Or today you have a chance to repent, to turn to God, admit your rebellion against his rule in your life and ask for his salvation. And friends, there's no partial way that we do that. There's no half way that we give our lives over to the Lord. It is all or nothing. We either submit our lives to him as Lord or we don't. And so today, you have a chance to repent, turn to God, admit your rebellion against his rule, and ask for his salvation. He has been faithful to do just that for so many in this room. And he will be faithful to do it for you as well if you surrender your life to him. Not in part, but in whole. And if that is you, I beg you to please come talk with any of the elders after the gathering about what it is to give your life to Christ. We would love to pray with you and talk with you about that. Well, because David has seen and witnessed God's gracious and faithful deliverance in his life and the life of his people, and he was looking forward to that which would be fulfilled in the ultimate Messiah, he knows that he can now trustingly offer a prayer for future deliverance. A prayer for future deliverance. Let's go back, if you would, to Psalm 40, and we're going to read the next section, Psalm 40, and we're going to read verses 11 through 17 together. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. 
Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Here we have another beautiful example of imprecatory prayer. Notice how David approaches it. He begins with God's character and faithfulness, and then he notes that evil surrounds him, possibly based on the next few verses, enemies, as in Psalm 35. But here he is also clear to declare that he has sin in the midst of it. And perhaps all of this, all the conflict he's dealing with, is the source of his own sinful actions. Perhaps these enemies are striking because David sinned against them. It seems now that he has repented, but rather than accept his repentance as God does, they have stuck firm in their negative stance towards him. And it's so sad, isn't it? Because he perfectly captures how sin overtakes us. He says, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Friends, this is what we must admit when we go before the Lord with our sin. How often does our emotional brain take over and wash over us with justification of our own sin. To admit what David admits is one of the greatest breakings of bondage in our lives when it comes to sin, is to admit that sin has power over us. And so we are needy and poor for the Lord to overtake that sin, to have power over it, to remove it, to rid us of it, so that we might walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. Well, regardless of the particularities of the background situation, David declares that my iniquities have overtaken me, and they are many. And so his heart has grown weak within him, even to the point of failure. And as with Psalm 35, he cries out to God for his particular deliverance, a deliverance he knows that only Yahweh can bring for someone in depraved weakness, as David is. The last two verses declare perfectly the balanced tension we're to pray in the midst of imprecation. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. His will is that God would be glorified, and so he waits now, as he waited in the past, knowing that God will do as he wills, and that is best. God being glorified is the greatest desire of those who have been remade in Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is the heart of a life surrendered to God. Be magnified, O Lord. And I wait, declaring to you that I am nothing but poor and needy. So I turn to you, Lord, because I know that you are so gracious and so good that you alone can deliver me from my own sin, my brokenness. Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, notice what it says, the Lord takes thought for me. Brothers and sisters, is our heart stance the same as David's? Do we come to the Lord with our needs but stand in trusting patience that he knows best and he will bring about his glory, his people's good, and his righteousness and justice. Friends, do you trust that? If not, do as David did. Immerse yourself in the remembrance of God's precious, gracious, and faithful acts towards and for his people and even for you. Remember God's graciousness to you to bring you salvation in spite of your rebellion against him. 
Remember his opening of your ear, even though you have covered them. Remember his unblinding of your eyes, even though you've turned away from him. And trust that he will make all things right in his perfect way, in his perfect timing, because he did so on the cross. And he will do so in every one of our lives. And brothers and sisters, if you find yourself kicking against this idea, go back to the basics of our faith and remember the cross. We do not follow a comfortable religion that was accomplished by way of ease. No, we follow a God who chose to die for us in our place and accomplish his glory and our justification through suffering. And in so doing, he has taken on the kingdom of darkness that surrounds us and hounds us and overwhelms us. And he has fought for us. He has rescued us. And he has vindicated us all in the blood of his son. And so we recognize that the words of Paul to the Roman church that are so often quoted as a promise of comfort and ease and prosperity are actually not that at all, but a promise that God will be glorified and we will be glorified with him regardless of what we face. He says this in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God will bring all good to bear. We can trust him and trust him enough to bring our hearts that are broken because of sin to him in imprecatory prayer as long as we do so in humility, realizing that his glory is what should be our goal. All praise and honor and glory to our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for his incomparable deliverance. Amen and amen. Let's pray.